Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hi, everyone. It's Claire and Nicole with Go Behind the Ballot. We're excited to share this episode with you today. In today's episode, we interviewed Representative James Tallarico. He represents the community in Northwest Austin, and he happens to sit on the House Public Education Committee. So he does a lot of special work around public education policy in this committee. And we just learned so many wonderful things from him. He is just a great person, so eloquent, very impressive. What did you think, Nicole? Yes, all of those things. He lives up to the hype. There's a little bit of, I think, if you look around, you'll find that there's some James Tallarico hype and he earns it. That's for sure. I feel like he is right in line, actually, with the amazing people we've interviewed. Really great at taking complicated issues, boiling them down to, I think, what's essential and also making a case for why democracy is so important. I know we didn't talk explicitly a whole lot in this interview about democracy, but I feel like it's just the underlying current. So that's why I'm tossing it in there. Yeah, agree. Well, democracy at the end of the day is about people and relationships. And he is so top of mind with that importance, like disclaimer, and talks about vulnerability and listening to one another and removing our blinders. And I really appreciate that from an elective representative because your job is to represent all kinds of different people. And it's important to move forward with that mindset. So we learned a lot. He was delightful and hope y'all enjoy this episode. Well, Representative James Tallarico, thank you for being with us today on Go Behind the Ballot. We're really excited to learn about you, how you got into politics, your work on the House Public Education Committee, all of those fun things. But to start, we always like to start back from the beginning. What were you like when you were younger? And did you grow up in Texas? I did. Yep. I grew up here in Central Texas. So I was born in Round Rock and grew up in the Wells Branch neighborhood just over the county line in Travis County in the district that... I'm now running it in House District 50. And I was a problem child. I got in trouble a lot in school. I was always in detention, always getting referrals, usually for talking too much in class and being disruptive. I was very social, which would later turn out to be handy in politics, but was not handy when I was supposed to be sitting still and listening in elementary school. But that experience is kind of what led me to focus on school discipline issues, school to prison pipeline issues. So it's very personal to me. So I was not a good kid when I was younger, but thankfully, because of extracurricular, learned how to harness some of those impulses into something productive. (laughs) That's so great. What did you enjoy learning when you were a kid? What subjects? So I always gravitated toward reading, writing, history, social studies, things about people and stories. That tends to be how I learn best, how I communicate best. I've always admired kind of math and science people, analytical people. It's just not usually how my brain works. Kind of the humanities, liberal arts were always what I gravitated toward. Right on. (laughs) I'm a fellow (laughs) liberal arts kind of person. Yes. I can't remember which side of the brain. I know. I get it mixed up too. I think that maybe left is the more creative. The side side. that doesn't understand numbers. Yeah, that's that's my side. Yeah. (laughs) 
If we were analytic people, we would know this, right? Right, exactly. Yes, we have the specific details. Yes. My sister, on the other hand, is she is the number side of the brain and she grew up to be an accountant and she's very precise and much smarter than I am. So glad there are people like that in the world. So growing up, I'm just curious, did you come from a family that was politically involved? Did y'all talk about politics around the dinner table or was that like, no, no, we don't discuss those things? So no, certainly it was the former in my case. So I was born to a, a single mom who had to leave an abusive situation like so many moms do to make sure that I was taken care of and provided for. And she worked at a hotel in Austin and we found a little apartment in East Austin where we lived. And that experience of being a survivor of domestic abuse, of being a single mom, of being working class, led her to become politically active. And so she volunteered for Planned Parenthood, also for Tayroll, which back then was the Texas Abortion Rights Action League. It later became Texas NARAL, pro-choice, and now is a vow. So it's had a long history as an organization. But back when she was volunteering in the early 90s, it was called Tayroll. And she actually would bring me after school when I was in kindergarten to the Tayroll office while she was organizing their celebration of choice. She was not a staff member, not paid. She was just a volunteer. But that certainly led me on the path that I'm currently on, path of service. So it was my mom who taught me that we have an obligation to give back and to try to change systems that are unjust. I love that. I'm always curious what people's breadcrumbs or touch points look like to get them where they are now. And it sounds like you witnessed a lot of that service when you were younger and then are now emulating it because your mom was like, let's go. We're going to go volunteer. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I've always said that I thought my mom would have been a great candidate, a great public servant. She didn't get to go to college, so didn't have the kind of fancy degrees that I have, which allowed me to do this work. But there are thousands, millions of people like her, organizers, volunteers on the ground, who I think we need to do a better job of uplifting and putting them in these positions. As you all know very well, there are a lot of barriers to entry to running for office and being in public service. But my mom would have been great at it. And then there are lots of people just like her who would be great at it too. That's been a recurring theme. Yeah, I think you're about to touch on it, Claire. Yeah. Yeah, no, we're really eager to get into that piece of it. The piece of how public office is, it seems like it is inaccessible to a lot of people because of the pay or lack of pay, the time commitment. And we're hoping to get into that with you because it's a problem. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. And I know that in particular, when I was elected, I was the youngest member of the legislature. And it's particularly hard for young people to run for office. One, because you usually need a giant network of wealthy people to fund your campaign. Young people tend to not have that unless you come from money or come from wealth. You tend to have to have this political and social infrastructure. You've got to be able to afford to serve in a part-time position, whether it's legislature or school board or another position like that. And that tends to be very difficult for young people. So it was not easy to get in this position, but we desperately, desperately need more young people to do so because as y'all know, the, the issues that we're facing, the, the challenges that we're having to overcome impact young people in particular. So, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, like, we don't want to segue too soon, do we? Yes. <laughs> so, getting us off track. <laughs> no, no. No, no. We'll, it's great. But. We'll get in there, but we'll get a little bit into not right when you're starting to run, but as you're in, getting into college, were you already thinking, I want to be an elected representative? Or what was that leap like from college to deciding this is the step I want to take to serve my community? Yeah, I always knew I wanted to do service in some capacity. And that comes from what my mom taught me, also from my 
faith and the church I grew up in. And so when I was in college, I did a lot of grassroots organizing around uh, affordability issues, accessibility issues. I went to the University of Texas for undergrad, and they were trying to hike tuition while I was there. It was that right in the middle of the Great Recession. So I was there from 2007 to 2011, right there during that period. And so I worked with a bunch of other student organizers, and we had students march to the Capitol, had them testify, had them lobby. And that was my first kind of experience at the state capitol, was kind of from the outside trying to get them to invest in higher ed, invest in financial aid to allow more working class students to go to public universities like UT. And was that successful? How did that go? (laughs) Well, it's more expensive than ever before to go to college. So a long term, it was not successful. But I think, as is the case with all organizing, you're living a larger story. You may not succeed success in your particular circumstance. You may not succeed success in your particular lifetime, but you're hopefully part of a much larger movement working toward a common goal. And I do think people across the country are waking up to the fact that higher ed needs to be transformed to be more accessible, more affordable, more relevant to people's lives and be more inclusive of all kinds of people. And as we know that the higher ed system in America and Europe was not built for all people. And so the challenge that we have in this country is how do we transform it, rebuild it so that it can be for everybody and anybody. Well, we have a conversation and look at me. I'm about to be mindful about the order of our episodes. But James, we recorded an episode with Chris Tackett. And one of the, well, there were a thousand great takeaways, but a couple of the big ones that you just touched on were the idea of redefining winning, really thinking about shaping the conversation and letting that be one of the ways that we look at winning. And I feel like that's kind of what you're touching on. Like maybe it didn't exactly reach the hoped for goal, but you certainly can change and open up the conversation. But I wanted to dig in a little bit. I'm just curious, like for you, how you define public service, like what does that mean to you and look like to you? Yeah. So when I say that, when I say service, I'm really using the broadest possible definition of giving back to a community. And that could be as small or as large as you'd like to define it. And so it can be in elected office, which is kind of how I'm serving in the current moment. It could also be in a public school where I used to serve as a public school teacher. Obviously, nurses, first responders, members of our armed forces serve every day through their profession. But it's also people like my mom who worked at a hotel during the day, but also found time to volunteer their time, their talent, their treasure to a cause larger than themselves that would impact the entire community. So service can look very different depending on your circumstances and your passions, but it's very different from living a life for yourself. So making as much money for yourself as you possibly can, doing things that only benefit yourself or your immediate family, which is how our culture tends to encourage that in almost every way. But I think a life of service is much more rewarding and fulfilling and living a life for yourself can leave you kind of empty at the end of the day, in my experience. Agree to that. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Yes. (laughs) So then tell us about the transition from being a student at UT and you're going to the Capitol and you're pushing for this change that you want to see to thinking I could be one of those elected representatives. Yeah, that jump didn't happen till later. I was still very focused on an issue. This seems to be true for a lot of people who run for offices. They kind of were involved in a particular issue set. And Claire, I know that you were very involved in education issues in your community. And that was 
True for me. I was so kind of motivated by this idea of educational equity and everyone having access to education. Because to me, education is not about getting a job. It's not about getting a degree. It's not about making money. It's about self-actualization. It's about waking up to who you are and what the world is. And that's something that every human being has a right to. And in this country and in the state, it is only available to folks who have money. And those folks tend to come from places of privilege, whether it's economic or racial privilege. And so that was what I was working on at UT. And when I was there, there was an organization recruiting. It was kind of a new organization at the time called Teach for America. And Teach for America, a lot of different folks had different opinions about it. And there's certainly some problematic aspects of the organization. But back when I was a student, they approached me and said, hey, we can give you the opportunity to go teach at a school that needs good teachers. And so I signed up and went and interviewed with a school at, in San Antonio ISD and was hired by that principal and taught sixth grade language arts at Rhodes Middle School. And that experience really changed my life in so many ways and put me on the course that I'm on now. And I, it was an incredibly difficult job, the hardest job I've ever had. And I've done a lot of things since then, but by far being a teacher on the West Side of San Antonio was the most difficult job. But I loved my students, I loved my fellow teachers, and loved the members of the community that I was a part of. And so that was the transition. It was from student organizer working on higher education issues to being a public school teacher working on K-12 issues. And then eventually decided that the work I was doing as an organizer, the work I was doing as a teacher, the work I later did as a nonprofit leader was kind of inadequate to transform the systems that were holding my students back. I could be as good of a teacher as I could be in room 112 at Rose Middle School. And I was a good teacher. I was nominated for the Rising Star Award in the district for new teachers. So I was good at my job and I loved it. But I was still only helping about 150 kids a year. And after they left my classroom, they were to go back into that broken system. I think Desmond Tutu, who we lost relatively recently, has a quote about you can keep pulling people out of a river but at some point, you've got to look upstream and figure out why they're falling in in the first place. And that was the feeling that I had. And that search led me straight to the Texas legislature, because that is where education policy is primarily crafted. I love that quote. That's a great one. And I think about that, too, all the time, about the systemic change that has to happen to improve things overall, holistically. So that resonates a lot with me. And I'll just say, Claire, especially in education that part of the conversation tends to make people uncomfortable because if you're teaching poor kids how to read, you're called a saint, right? If you start asking why those kids are poor in the first place, suddenly you're a radical. And so that transition to system level thinking and system level action is necessary, but it's also disruptive and you get a lot of pushback, right? Suddenly you're not the nice teacher who's serving kids on an individual basis. Now you're trying to question the entire system in which your kids and their families live. Definitely. Well, and I find we put the restraints on ourselves too sometimes. Yep. Like we've tried to be really sensitive about how we think of this podcast and how we position ourselves because there's just this looming accusation of being partisan and being overly political. And it's wild how powerful that threat feels when we've like had so many conversations about how what we're talking about is democracy and access and interrogating systems. And that isn't partisan. Yeah. That is not partisan. Yeah. So. 
Well, and, and I'm someone who believes that everything is political. And so when people draw a line saying something is or isn't political really reveals what they take for granted and what they think is normal or what's acceptable. It's always interesting to me when people use the term political and they label something as political when in fact everything is. Everything is, yes. We have our mini episodes where Nicole and I talk about our broader issue and something we're going to discuss soon here is just what is the purpose of public education. And it's interesting because a lot of what it gets into is this invisible machinery that really is impacting children's experiences, but it's like someone created that machinery. So what does that look like? And we're trying to help reveal that through this podcast. And it's very much working now in education policy. You just realize how much of what I'm trying to do or what we're trying to do is trying to fit a round peg into a square hole. This was not designed to serve all children. Like the black and brown children that I served in the west side of San Antonio, the system was not meant for them. Now, I, I believe, obviously I believe because I'm doing this, that we can make a system that works for them and that serves them and their families. I believe that with every fiber of my being. But that's not the system we had and that wasn't how it was designed. And so I think once you come to that realization, it becomes a lot easier to do this difficult work because you realize how difficult it truly is. I want to get back to your run, but I also want to stick with this thread. Yes, yeah, so, sorry, we're off topic. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. It's good. It's all part of it. But do you feel like the people that you're working with agree with you on these, that public education wasn't designed to serve all children? Like, where do you find your base? And then you can build I, that from there. I don't think they realize it, especially my Republican colleagues, because they're the ones who are in charge. Matters very little what me and my Democratic colleagues believe or think at the legislature because we don't have power in any formal sense. The only power we have in the minority is to use the rules to kill or weaken bills and use relationships to try to convince our colleagues to do the right thing. But we can't pass a bill on our own. We can't implement policy on our own. When I say my colleagues, I'm really talking about my Republican colleagues. And I always try to treat them, obviously, with authentic love and respect, as I think every human being is entitled to. And it also makes it easier to try to always assume best intentions and believe in someone's growth, even someone who passes and votes for morally horrific legislation. Still always believing, like I used to believe in my students, that they can get better is critical to this job. And that is easier said than done. And I fail it all the time. And sometimes when I'm angry, I write people off and say they are irredeemable. Then I try to remember that I don't believe that. And I have you to, write it in pencil. You're like, no, no. Yes. Yeah. yeah erase that. Yeah. <laughs> so but back to your question. If I'm thinking from the most empathetic point of view, I think my colleagues are limited by their experience. And I know that because I, as white straight guy, I have the same limitations, those same blinders. Thankfully, I've been able to have some experiences and relationships that have helped take off some of those blinders. But a lot of my colleagues still have the full set that they were born with. And so the challenge is how do you lift those blinders for folks? The best way is through experiences and through lived experiences. I worked on legislation that didn't pass to try to get every legislator to teach for a day in a public school. Because I think being on the ground and being with people, being with communities is part of lifting those blinders and seeing how systems impact real people in real places. So to them, I think growing up from a point of privilege, going to a public school that worked for them and graduating, getting a good job, becoming successful and being in the legislature, that all works pretty well. When you look back on it, you think, well, oh, that system is pretty good. We need some tinkering around the edges, but it's pretty good. But if you're one of my kids from the West Side, you have a very different perspective on how that system does not work. 
and is not intended to work for you? So the answer is no. I don't think my colleagues realize the extent of the problem or the roots of the problem. And I'm still learning about it too. So I put myself in that same category. Okay, I'll ask one more question now that we're down this path. So what has helped you or what do you think helps them start to remove those blinders? Is it testimony? Like what's impactful? Again, it's human connection. That can sometimes happen in testimony, but testimony is hard. You're in kind of a performative space. You're kind of physically disconnected. But I remember, I think I can share this story. One of the best organizers at the Capitol is an activist named Ash Hall. And Ash does a lot of the work, a lot of work for the trans community in Texas and is an outspoken advocate for trans kids in particular. And during the horrible debate about the UIL bill that discriminated against trans children in sports, Ash wrote a personal note to the former chairman of the education committee, Dan Huberty. And it was a really, it wasn't about policy. It was just about who Ash is as a human being and what their experience has been like in life and what this bill would would have done to them and what it's doing to trans kids across Texas. And I remember Dan Huberty coming to me on the floor and showing me this little letter. It was on a little piece of paper, it wasn't even long, and talking about how much it touched him. I don't think we ever got Dan all the way to a no vote. I do know that he helped us try to slow down the bill. And I know he had some significant doubts and we may have been able to push him over the edge if we had had enough time. But I just remember thinking that Ash was so brilliant to just like strip away all of the talking points, all of the policy, all of the jargon, and just kind of get to like that human to human connection. Anyway, I think that's the only way that I've ever learned. The only way I've ever changed is from a connection with another human being. And I think that's true in politics and in policy. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that story because something else we want to do with this podcast is help give people tools on how to have their voice heard and how to feel that they can change people's minds because we have to do a little bit of that to move things forward in the direction we want or stop things if we don't want them to happen. Well, I always, and this is true on campaigns too. You know, these are two sides of the same coin, campaigns and politics and policy, right? They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And it's true on both sides of the ball that you have to be vulnerable. And I mean, think about our relationships in real life, your partner, your spouse, your child, your parent, like none of those relationships come to fruition without vulnerability. Like that is the center of it, stripping away all the masks that we wear. And that's true when you get up to testify or when you meet with a legislator, like don't have the one pager in front of you, right? When you go knock on a door during a campaign, don't have a script in front of you. Those things can be helpful to kind of set a foundation and to have your facts ready if you need them, but strip that away and just come as a person, a vulnerable person. And I'll say that's a lot easier said than done, especially for marginalized populations that have to come to the capital in an unfriendly environment and advocate for their own humanity. That is not easy to do. I've never had to do that myself, but it's the only thing that'll work, unfortunately. And so it's necessary. I'm really glad that you acknowledged the difficulty of that. I have to say, like, my heart is beating really fast right now. And I'm like, feeling super fidgety, because you just touched on it. I think that having to advocate for one's humanity is, it's a big ask. It's a lot of grace that you have to extend to the person on the other end. The trans issue like really hits home for me. I have an 11 year old who's non-binary. And you know, we had to create a safety folder this past year. And it's really challenging to frankly, not be incredibly angry that I feel like it is necessary to justify my child's existence and 
to justify my love for them and my desire to give them healthy outcomes to people who it feels like (laughs) just don't even want to acknowledge their humanity. So I'm not really going anywhere with this, except that I do appreciate that you are acknowledging that that is hard for people. And I think what I find personally really frustrating is the lack of curiosity. Like, it really bothers me, really hurts my heart, honestly, that folks would create legislation that can be harmful. And when they hear that it is harmful on a really personal level, aren't curious about the harm that it causes, our family went into a tailspin. Like, this is real stuff. And it is a big ask, I guess is all I'm saying. It's a lot of grace to have to extend to someone who, by all evidence, doesn't desire your well-being. And something you shouldn't have to do. We should all acknowledge, I think we're all assuming that, but we should say that a lot. Like, this shouldn't have to be the case. And Nicole, I'm glad you brought up the word safety because it's not just emotionally uncomfortable. It's also putting themselves in real danger, both emotionally, mentally, but also physical danger. I mean, the capital is not a safe place for a lot of marginalized people. And that's part of the thing that keeps me going when I'm getting discouraged or I'm getting upset or I'm feeling kind of hopeless is I look at people like Ash Hall and I'm like, if Ash can do this, a much harder thing than I'm doing, then I have to keep going. And the last thing I'll say is this is why we have to do this in community and why people of privilege are part of this community too, to try to take off as much of the load as we can. And I can't remember which an activist told me this, and I can't remember who it was, but talked about the analogy of a choir. In that a choir, you can stop singing and the rest of the choir can kind of carry forward. And then when you start singing, they can stop, right? And everybody's able to kind of carry a burden and then take that burden down. If we're going to do this here in Texas, and we're part of a big mission that we're trying to accomplish together, we're going to have to do it as a group and as a community, because it's a lot to ask, especially from the folks who are directly impacted. Yeah, I like that imagery of a choir. I think that's really beautiful. It makes me think we also recently spoke to Laura Subrin Yeager, who does a lot of education advocacy work. And she was saying, like, I'm tired. And it's like, well, we're going to find other people to keep carrying the torch because, yeah, sometimes you need to take a break and rest and then get back in it. And find places for joy. The best activists that you meet, you're going to interview some of them. They have this like wicked sense of humor. It's like this gallows humor that they have even in a really dark place in a dark time. Because they kind of have this little candle that's like still burning, even when all of this is happening, the storm is around them. And so I've tried to learn from them and kind of cultivate that. Like even in dark times, we should find joy and should cultivate joy and do that for each other. There's a real bad tendency in progressive circles to be like, things are bad. So we all have to be unhappy at all times. And it's like, that's not how human beings work. It's also not sustainable. Like, We have to be able to laugh with each other. We have to be able to sing and dance with each other. Like all of these things still have to happen if we're going to do this over the long haul. Because as we've already touched on, this is a long mission that's been happening long before all of us got here. Yes. And with any movement, you got to bring people in. And I don't want to go to a party where people look miserable. (laughs) Yep. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. And that's why when you look at movements in history, the labor movement, civil rights movement, the women's rights movement... I mean, you think about, in addition to the politics, the music and culture that those movements also inspired and created. So they're much more than a policy or a political movement. They're fully faceted and multidimensional. That's great. So 
Let's get back to before you're a representative. Yes, sorry. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Our winding road. We will. We no, get back. It. That's how it's a real conversation. Exactly. So then when did you think, okay, I think I could do this. I think I'm ready to put my name on the ballot and run to be a state representative. Well, after I left the classroom to work at a nonprofit, because again, I was dissatisfied with, with the scope of my reach in a classroom. I was really excited about what this nonprofit was doing. I had had some great nonprofits that had helped me in the classroom when I was in the classroom. And so I was an executive director and I was doing kind of fundraising and meeting with foundations and R&D and working with school districts. But again, kept running into like roadblocks put in place by policymakers. And when I kind of dug a little deeper, I realized those barriers were being put up at the legislature. It wasn't really school boards because school boards tend to implement policy. In education, it's not really at the federal level. Federal level is a lot about funding education, not really crafting as much policy. Although there is some, you think of IDEA and other things like that, or No Child Left Behind. But really the bulk of it is done at the state legislative level. And so that's what I set my sights on. And a seat opened up in Round Rock, a city where I was born. The Republican was leaving office. President Trump had won that district by one point in 2016. And so I decided to throw my hat in the ring. I had some certain skills. I knew how to organize. I was a good, confident public speaker. I knew a lot about policy, given my work in the classroom, given my degree in my master's degree in education, and given my nonprofit work. And I knew the community really well because I'd grown up here. So I was like, okay, I think that's enough for me to go ahead and put my name out there. And the rest is history. And we were able to cobble together enough support to get 51% of the vote in that election in 2018 and got elected. And I think I was the first Democrat in that part of Williamson County to get elected since before I was in kindergarten. So it was a big flip, a big change. And it was possible because of countless people, both in the community and from outside of it. And how old were you? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I was 28 when I started the campaign, 29 when I got elected. So I was the youngest member of the legislature when I got sworn in. It was an interesting dynamic. A lot of my colleagues, of course, were old enough to be my grandparents. Some of them would say that explicitly, would say, you know, remind me of my grandson or something like that. (laughs) There was a temptation to take offense or something like that. But I used it as an opportunity to build relationships with people I normally wouldn't have a relationship with. But it was also a lot of pressure because there were no 20-somethings in the whole state government. And so I was like, okay, I've got to represent my whole generation here at the decision-making table, (laughs) a generation that is incredibly diverse, incredibly different, and I've got to try to be that voice. And so it was a lot of pressure. And one thing I tried to use with that platform, or you do with that platform, was try to support other young candidates that were running for office, typically at the very local level, because that's how you build up to a state legislative run or a congressional run is you get people elected to school board and to city council. And so I've tried and continue to try to support young candidates, primarily financially, because that tends to be the biggest area of need. What was it like in the beginning when you were sworn in and you were a state representative? Like, how do you even prepare for a role like that? Do they have training? I mean, what happens? Uh, You're you're a rep. There is. is, There's like an orientation, which kind of shows you where the bathrooms are and how your desk button works. But in terms of like, how do you be a good policymaker? That has to come from your life experience and has to come with the people you surround yourself with. And so I knew that hiring an excellent staff was going to be the key decision that I made. And so I brought on an incredible chief of staff who has since been stolen away to work on other things by other groups. But her name was Michelle Castillo. 
And she's an amazing leader. She was at the Children's Defense Fund. She uh, has also been involved in college accessibility and had worked for several other key members, including Rodney Ellis, legendary state senator out of Houston. And so I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how this place runs. I need to find someone who does to lead my office. And Michelle was the person who did that. And I would not be the legislator I am today if it wasn't for Michelle Castillo. So having a great team is by far the most important thing you can do as a candidate or a policymaker. That's helpful to know. Yes. For anyone who might become a rep and it's like, what do I do now? Find a good team. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And there's a lot of people who want to do this work, but don't want to be out in front, don't want to be a public person, don't want to expose themselves to that kind of criticism or attention. And I get that. And I sometimes feel that way too. I think those people should definitely think about being staff in the Capitol because the staff members are what makes that building run. They're the ones who are doing the actual nuts and bolts of policymaking in this state. So um, if you're interested in politics, I mean, a lot of people think they have to be the elected official because that's what you see on TV and you watch the West Wing and it's always the person in the room, right? I mean, being a member of a team or a staff member for a legislator is sometimes more rewarding, more fulfilling. You get to do the actual work you want to do without all the kind of unnecessary and unfun stuff that surrounds public office. So anyway, just a plug. If you're listening to this and you want to do politics, really think about being a staff member. And we don't have nearly enough talented, imaginative, competent staff members in politics at all levels. And the pay is better being a state legislator. So, <laughs> Well, let's talk about the pay. So, do we, have, do we have to talk about my pay? <laughs> well, I'm fascinated by this because, as I mentioned, we talked to Dr. Audrey Young, who's an SBOE member, and she says she makes nothing. School board trustees make nothing. I'm like, wait a minute, you guys campaign, you work so hard. They don't have staff. And I'm like, you don't make any money. Like, oh my goodness. And I know that state reps make very little. So yeah, what do you it's make? not true for every public <laughs> office. Yeah, obviously county commissioners. I know Austin city council members make $70,000 a year, which is a great salary. Members of Congress, they make 150,000 a year, which is a very nice salary. So some positions aren't paid. We should make a disclaimer. And if you're thinking about public office, you should consider a lot of things, but If you don't come from family money, you should consider what positions pay something. Or again, to plug a staff position, that gets you a salary and benefits and retirement. So for my position, I make $7,200 a year. That's about $450 a month after taxes. That said, there are some perks. One is that if you stay in legislature long enough, you get a very generous pension when you retire. So that is a perk. I think you have to be there like eight years or something to get that benefit. And being a state representative also opens you up to be able to do other things outside of that. And you meet a lot of people, which can also be something you get paid for. I have a day job in addition to this. So I'm an education consultant, which I was very fortunate to be able to find a job where I could use my education expertise and be able to do work that I think is interesting and informs my policymaking. So for instance, as an education consultant, I helped set up My Brother's Keeper initiative here in Austin with some of our high schools where it was an initiative set up by President Obama when he was in office to help young men of color get to success in post-secondary after high school. That's work that I was able to do with Austin ISD, with Pflugerville ISD, and the My Brothers Keeper initiative here in Austin. But that's completely separate from my legislative job and how I earn a paycheck that's actually livable every month. Now, if I'm being honest, most of my colleagues tend to be either wealthy ranchers, businessmen or lawyers who own their own law firms or doctors who own their own practice. 
So there are very few people like me who work an actual kind of nine, nine to five job in addition to being a legislator. And not to go on and on about this, but it has bad implications for our democracy. If you only have wealthy people serving in positions of power, it's going to skew your policymaking. It's going to skew how state government works. So there's, well, I think, only a handful of legislators who are in my position of still working a job, still having to earn a living, and coming from a background of having to work for a living. So I'm an advocate of paying legislators a full living wage. And that's sometimes controversial because people don't like the idea of paying politicians. But if you don't pay politicians, you only have wealthy people serving in political office. And that's also bad. So pick your poison. And I think paying politicians living wage is a much better option. Yeah, I think I once heard someone say, someone much smarter than me, they said it so succinctly, that whoever is closest to the power should be closest to the pain. And when you have that system of not compensating politicians, well, you're going to get people who don't need to worry about money. And that's a problem. Yeah. Well, and especially teachers. So I'm one of only three legislators who has been a classroom teacher out of the entire legislature. And I wanted to go back into the classroom after I was elected. And I thought I could maybe teach kind of on the off years. And ethics laws in Texas prevent me from working for an ISD. So there's just so many obstacles. Even if you are qualified to do a job, I'm still certified to teach in Texas. So I could go back into the classroom, but I'm not able to because of ethics laws that are in place. So it's very difficult to manage it, but if you can, it's worth it because we need people like that in positions of public trust. Last thing I'll also say is I don't have a family yet. I don't have a partner. I don't have kids that I have to support. That makes it very easy for me to do this or relatively easy. I can't imagine how someone would do this in my position if they were trying to take care of kids or support a family. I can live off ramen noodles when I need to. If I had kids at home, obviously we need to make sure I was making more money than, than I do. Yeah. My son loves peanut butter and jelly. Ooh, work-life balance. I love our two takeaways today. <laughs> I'm like, they could just eat cheap. <laughs> yeah, builds character. Yeah, you don't want them to grow up to be little brats. So, nutrition, yeah. some nutrition. That's yeah. right, that's right. <laughs> Later. They'll be fine, they'll be fine. While we still have a little bit of time with you, we did want to talk about the House Public Education Committee, which you sit on. So before we talk about that, I guess, can you tell us how committee selection works and how, so there's all these committees that we have at the legislature and certain representatives sit on there and a lot of work happens in committee. So just maybe a little overview. Yeah. So there's 150 of us in the state house and we all come from all parts of the state and all of us getting on the floor trying to make a bill would be chaotic. And so we've we've got some organization where we're divided into committees based on issues. I sit on one of the more powerful committees, which is the public education committee, which makes decisions for 5.5 million Texas school children. And you're selected for committees by the speaker. So basically, it's one person deciding who goes where. There's some influence of seniority. If you've been there long enough, you can get kind of first dibs on certain committees. But really, besides that, it's based on the decisions of the Speaker of the House, who's elected by the membership. Hopefully, the body elects a speaker who makes committee assignments, at least partially based on expertise experience, knowledge, passion. That's how the House should work. Obviously, can't prevent politics from entering into the Texas legislature. And so some of it is who was supportive of the speaker when he ran for speaker and who's done what favor for who and who's on good terms with whom. All that also plays a role into it as well. So it's kind of a combination of political relationships, expertise, and seniority that gets you a place on a certain committee. 
And I should say, we fill out a preference card, just like a little index card saying what committees we want to be on in a certain order. So the speaker takes that and then it goes into a black hole and the speaker makes their decisions. He spins the wheel and you get what you get. And sometimes it changes. <laughs> Throws the cards up. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes if you have done something that upsets people, you can get kicked off a committee. So really? we'll see if I'm back on the next session. Okay. That I did not know. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you primarily focus on in the House Public Education Committee? You said education policy, but like, what does that policy actually look like? Yeah. So, I mean, it changes based on what's happening in the state. So obviously it's K through 12. There's a separate committee for higher education. And I personally think there should be a committee for early childhood. I'm working on that. But pre-K through 12 is what a bit the committee focuses on. Everything from assessment and accountability and testing to curriculum to teacher compensation, teacher training to school nutrition and extracurriculars and recess. I mean, really the whole runs the gamut from things that impact students directly to kind of things that impact the professionals in the system to school finance, which, as you all know, is very complicated. And there's an old joke at the Capitol that only three people understand our state school finance system and two of them are dead. So it's a complicated system and it sucks up a lot of the oxygen during a session is kind of figuring out how to make that system work better for kids and for teachers. So which issues do you think are going to rise to the top this next legislative session? Well, I mean, every time someone asks me this, I want to give them two answers. One is what issues should rise to the top? What issues will probably rise to the top? So let's start with the first one. The things we should be focused on, one learning loss from COVID. We've had expert after expert and educator after educator come to us and talk about really the incredibly harmful impacts academically, socially, emotionally of the pandemic on our kids. And recovering from that is going to take a massive effort statewide. It's going to take marshalling all the resources of state government to fix it. And there are some studies from other countries that have had kind of similar natural disasters where there's been a massive disruption in public education. And you can see the impacts of that years down the road. And sometimes the kids never recover in terms of their earnings over their lifetime from that disruption. So learning loss has to be at the top of the list. Teacher shortage, teacher compensation, teacher morale. I think focusing on our educators has to be kind of right after we talk about student learning loss. And then I would say the third should be making school finance again a major conversation this session. I'm someone who believes every session should be a school finance session. And we've got to make sure that system is serving all of our students, particularly our students who come from poor neighborhoods, our black and brown students, our English learners, our special education students, our students with disabilities. Those are the students who need the most attention. There are students of promise and they are getting the poorest service from our state government. And so how do you transform that school finance system to work for them and for their families? Those are what we should focus on. What we will focus on, most likely, and I don't mean to be a pessimist, but we will focus on culture war issues that help my Republican colleagues win their Republican primaries. So we will talk about non-existent pornography in schools. We will talk about how we can best whitewash history to shield students and teachers from the truths of what has happened in this country. We will probably focus on ways to further marginalize and discriminate against trans children in the state of Texas, and probably LGBTQ students more broadly, not just trans students. There was kind of this false perception, kind of reminds me after Obama was elected and people said we were a post-racial America, there was this idea that kind of gay rights was settled in America and we were beyond that. I think this whole school library 
groomers discussion is showing us that that is not true. In fact, you've seen some extremists suggest that we need to segregate LGBTQ students from other students. I mean, I never thought we'd be having that conversation again. So again, things we took for granted are going to need some more work, are going to need some more defense and bolstering. That's probably what we will focus on. And really, it's a travesty because the legislature meets every other year for five months. And really, it's only like three months because the first two months, you can't even pass a bill on the floor. And we are a huge, diverse, complex state that has huge problems. And to try to fix them all two months every other year is insanity. And that's even more insane when you take that precious time and spend it on manufactured crises. So how do we get the conversation back on learning loss, the teacher shortage and school finance? Like, how do we, the listeners, me and Nicole, how do we do this? <laughs> well, I'm going to give you an answer that's, I think, a truer answer, but it's not as immediately gratifying because it's not like, well, go to www. Right? It's not, it's not giving you <laughs> And just enough. sign yeah, up. <laughs> and sign up and you're done, right? Or send a donation to my campaign, right? Like, that's going to be the answer. The true answer is we need political reform. And what I mean by that is changes to our political process and system. And this rarely gets talked about because it's a little more distant from people's daily lives. At the national level, we talk about the filibuster. If you go on the street and you say filibuster to most people, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. It has nothing to do with their, them sending their kid to school, them going to the doctor, their job. But all of us who are in politics know that filibuster at the national level is holding up progress on all of those things that they care about. This weird word, this obscure rule in the Senate is holding up everything else. And that is true in the legislature, not a filibuster, but I would say redistricting reform gets to the heart of what's happening with this kind of extreme policymaking that I just talked about. The way we draw districts in Texas is really screwy. Politicians draw their own districts, which in any other industry, in any other field would be an obvious conflict of interest. But for some reason, that's how we do it here in the state. And I was a victim of that, as you both know. I was gerrymandered out of my seat. I was one of a handful of legislators who was targeted in the redistricting process. And I lost my district that I flipped because of that process. Thankfully, I was able to run in the neighboring district where I grew up. But I know firsthand how gerrymandering can subvert the public's will by silencing the power and voices of people in our communities, particularly communities of color. And so, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds of this, but these districts are drawn to be bright blue or bright red, meaning the only way for a politician to get reelected is to appeal to their primary electorate. Because if you win your primary, you're guaranteed to win your general because it's so lopsided. We don't have any more 50-50 districts like the ones I used to represent in Williamson County. And when that's the system we have, it encourages elected officials to appeal to the most extreme elements in their party. And in Texas, that really means the Republican Party because they're the ones in charge. That's why you see bullying trans children, whitewashing history, muzzling teachers, banning books. That's why you see that taking up so much oxygen because the system encourages it. Politicians are just rational actors most of the time. They're just going to follow the incentives that are put in front of them by the political system. So if you want politicians to act differently, you have to change those incentives. And so anyway, that's my long deep answer to what needs to happen. And anything people can do to hasten that, I think will bring a much brighter day for our state. That's actually a refreshing answer, I think. Yeah, well, I think it's a great plug for our election series, because we are going to talk about redistricting and gerrymandering. So people understand 
when they think my vote doesn't matter. It does matter, but we can see why you think that because the invisible machinery, I mean, that's right. you're not totally wrong, but we're going to try to fix that. <laughs> that's exactly right. And now the hopeful part is they can't gerrymander the state. You can't change the lines of the state of Texas. And I'll say that as not just as a Democrat, but as a Texan, we need to elect Beto O'Rourke this fall as our governor. And I hope everyone can agree with that, not just Democrats, because Greg Abbott has done more harm to Texans than any governor in recent memory. And so I hope Democrats, independents, Republicans, people who don't have a party affiliation can come together and elect someone who is going to be infinitely better than Greg Abbott to the governor's mansion. That is an immediate thing we can do this fall. We can't fix gerrymandering. We can't fix the redistricting system this fall, but we can elect a new governor, a new lieutenant governor, a new attorney general, and bring some fresh leadership. And again, my pitch to New Republican listeners, one party rule is always bad. In any country, in any state, one party rule leads to corruption. It doesn't allow for accountability. It leads to bad policymaking. So you should vote for Beto O'Rourke, Mike Collier, Rochelle Garza, and the rest of the Democratic ticket just to balance out the parties in state government and provide a necessary check on the legislature. That's my pitch to anybody who's not a diehard Democrat. That's a great pitch. Well, it's also a good reminder for us. We've been learning that if you care about education, the education commissioner is appointed by the governor. So know that when you're voting as well. And Claire, the Beto O'Rourke, as he's running, has already committed to selecting an educator to be our TEA commissioner. Wow. Isn't that radical? Yeah. Well, and again, (laughs) it just goes to show that during the campaign, you should be asking these questions of candidates, even the candidates in a party that you belong to. You got to hold them accountable. And if Beto gets elected governor, we've got to hold him accountable. We can't just sign a blank check to someone because they have a D next to their name. And so we've got to make sure Beto, if he's elected, appoints an educator, as he promised, and appoints an educator who is going to serve all students in the state of Texas, not just some. Absolutely. It's baffling that you don't have to be an educator to be the education commissioner. Yeah. Yeah. And again, <laughs> it's a great bill idea. Might steal that from me, Claire. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Okay. We will let you go very shortly. We have one last thing that we do at the end here is our attention mentions where we just mention something that has our attention. So it can be like an event you went to or an article, a movie you saw, a book you read. But to kind of tag on to yours, the thing I was going to mention today was I went to the Beto rally yesterday. And it was a really fun event. I took my four-year-old son, and it was great to see the other candidates running for statewide office. It was the long center. It was kind of hot, but not like 100 plus degrees, so bearable. But it was just nice to be in that environment and to be around people who are very passionate about democracy and voting. And I encourage anyone to go to a political rally and check it out, be a part of the crowd, ask questions, get to know people and hear them for yourself because it makes a difference when you're face-to-face in real life once again, which y'all got y'all ready? Yes, sure. So I yeah. will recommend it. Can I recommend a TV show? Is that allowed? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to. <laughs> so okay, good. Yes. I'm going to recommend the show Dope Sick, also based on the <laughs> Dope Sick. I don't know, you've already talked about it, but it's an incredible expose on the opioid crisis and particularly the way that greed and capitalism led to the opioid crisis and puts a spotlight on the particular family, the Sackler family, that sold these drugs knowing they were addictive to millions of people in pain and led to the mass addiction that we've seen in this country. I mean, they're basically a legal drug cartel. I thought it was a well-done show, an important show, and it just shows like that art, whether it's TV or movies or music, 
when it's done well and for the right reasons, can really just shine such a spotlight on an issue. And so highly recommend DopeSick to anybody who wants to know more about that issue. We co-sign. We've both been obsessed. Yep, 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 yep. It's a double recommend. Y'all might hear that from me in a future episode. Yeah, I don't remember which one it was that you did that. Yeah. It was Chris Tackett's because I was like, Chris, you would Uh, love this because he's all about dark money and politics. And I was like, the way they shielded themselves from any accountability was bonkers. Yeah. Someone give Michael Keaton his Emmy. Seriously. He was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So many people were. What you got, Nicole? Mine is Love on the Spectrum. It is available on Netflix. It's a reality show featuring folks on the autism spectrum looking for love. It is so wholesome and lovely and will just warm your heart. And the people that are on the show are excellent social media follows. Like if you just want to have a really lovely social media feed, follow all of them. And Kaylin in particular gives excellent life advice. So... Love, love on the spectrum. That. This is good. Yeah. Watch Dope Sick. Very sobering. And then go lighten it up with yes. love on the spectrum. Yes. Balance it out. Balance it out. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It's all about a balanced diet these days. But yes. thank you so much, Representative Talarico, for taking some time with us. We know you're very busy, but we love learning more about public education and public service and how to get more involved because that's what we got to do to make Texas better. Yeah. And thank you all so much for having me and for doing this show. It's so important. And I know things feel hopeless right now. But I hope y'all, people listening, and Nicole, I hope your 11-year-old knows that there are people who love them and are fighting for them every day in the Capitol, even when things are dark. I think so. I mean, overall, I do want to put out there, I am quite hopeful, and I do believe that things will get better. So I am not hopeless, and I just sometimes get upset. That's right. (laughs) As you should. As you should. Yeah. Well, I'm feeling much more hopeful after this conversation. So thank you. Good. Us too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.